Open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 8. 1 Samuel 8 is where we're going to be this morning. 1 Samuel chapter 8. I remember growing up as a kid, spankings were a regular thing in our household. Uh, especially for me, I uh, quite regularly, at least, I don't know how regular it was, but I remember them. Let's put it that way, all right? Uh, they stood out to me. I remember receiving a number of spankings from my father in correction for sins, and I deserve them. I'm not standing up here to make apologies for them. I'm not here to say, but you should really see it my way at all. I look now on the back side of that, and I realized I deserved it. Though at the time, I will say, it did seem quite unfair, all right? Uh, he didn't ever seem to hear my side of the story at all, and that didn't seem to matter. What I did realize later on, as I came out from under the auspices of my parents and struck out on my own and things like that, is that quite frequently I realized I had jumped off into either sin or bad choices that I knew in my childhood he had spared me from because he stepped in and disciplined me. Now, at the time, it seemed unfair. But on the backside of that, as I got into adulthood, I began to realize, actually, it was quite freeing and saving me from a lifetime of trouble. In our passage this morning, God's people now are at their wit's end, where they are asking for a king. They want to overthrow God's authority in their life. And he's going to warn them that that doesn't turn out maybe the way you think it does. 1 Samuel chapter 8. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of the firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day that I brought them out of, up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for, to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipments of chariots equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers, 
He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take a, the tenth of your flocks and you will be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. They said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a terrible passage of Scripture we have in front of us. It should strike us even with fear at the thought that we might overthrow you as king in our hearts. I pray that you would help us to understand this word that you have put before us. That you would open the eyes of every single person in this room, man, woman, and child, to let us see the ways in which we have already begun to do so in our own lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There are, just by way of context, before we get into the passage at hand, a couple of things that I think are helpful to remember as we study through 1 Samuel. The first is that a few chapters ago, in chapter 4, you may remember that Israel was defeated by the Philistines in battle. They were defeated actually quite soundly. They lost at the very least two battles. The first battle that they lost, they lost 4,000 men. And in the second battle they lost, they lost 30,000 men. So 34,000 at the very least all together. The second thing that you'll recall is that right before that second battle, after they had lost 4,000 men in the first battle, they got together before they went into battle and they decided on something really brilliant. They decided, let's go and let's grab the Ark of the Covenant and bring it out to the battlefield so that God will fight for us. Now you remember, the Ark of the Covenant is essentially a gold-covered box. And inside that box, it contained several artifacts from Jewish history. One was a golden jar of manna. That's the manna that God provided for the children of Israel in the wilderness. They kept a jar and kept it in the Ark of the Covenant. They, provided Aaron, they, they put in there Aaron's staff that had budded as a miracle. And the stone tablets of the Ten Commandments were also in there. So there were some very precious artifacts to the children of Israel. But at the top of the Ark of the Covenant, on top of the lid, there was a mercy seat where God dwelled. Now, that doesn't mean that God's presence was only there on the top of the Ark of the Covenant, but that God's presence was specially there in order to serve for the priests to offer sacrifice and things like that. So Israel, essentially, by bringing the Ark of the Covenant out onto the battlefield, was treating this Ark of the Covenant like a holy relic or like a good luck charm. And they brought it out to the battlefield thinking that this would coerce God or strong-arm God 
into fighting on their behalf. And certainly, if the Ark of the Covenant was there on the battlefield, there's no way they could lose this battle. Their victory was a sure thing. Of course, we saw in that same passage that God was not going to be treated like a good luck charm. Nor was He going to allow the Ark of the Covenant to be treated that way. In fact, they lost more men than the first battle. They lost 30,000 men. And the Ark of the Covenant was captured, was taken into Philistine territory, and by all intents and purposes, Israel was defeated by Philistia that day. But it turns out that all of this was symptomatic of a much bigger problem that lies deep within the hearts of the people of Israel. You see, they don't really like the idea that God rules over them. That's what's at the base of all of that. That's what's at the base of bringing the Ark of the Covenant out there to the battlefield. I don't like the idea that God rules over me and He makes the rules. I would much rather be able to manipulate Him at my own whim. You see, all the other nations, as they do a survey across the world that they know, they see nations that have made idols out of wood. They've carved these gods out of their own image. And then they make of them whatever they want. They serve whatever purposes the maker or the carver says that they serve. But here is the people of Israel who serve Yahweh, who is spirit, who rules on high, who is King of kings and Lord of lords. And as such, if you serve Yahweh, then the people of Israel are learning He makes the rules. And that's less fun. Let's just be honest. He makes the rules that I'm created in His image. That whatever He says goes. And so what that means for the people of Israel is that they have to, oh no, live by faith and not by sight. But the nations around them can look directly at their idols. They can live by sight and not by faith. See, if you live by faith, then you have to follow His direction wherever He directs you. And that, even as we see in our own lives, as a people, a church community who are called to live by faith, ends up being quite difficult in the long run. So in our passage this morning, Israel is asking, maybe even demanding, a king from Samuel. There's always some confusion when you read this passage amongst Christians. Because you're left with the impression that kings are bad. And that Israel shouldn't have wanted a king. That they shouldn't have asked for a king. But then we see in other places in the Bible that it seems to suggest that a king is good. Right? Remember at the end of the book of Judges? It's a phrase we've come back to time and again in this study of 1 Samuel. Because the book of 1 Samuel takes place at the end of the book of Judges. There's that phrase at the end of the book of Judges that says, There was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Well, that seems to say that if there was a king in Israel, then it would have been better. That people would have been more righteous, and they would have pursued God rightly, because the king would have ruled rightly. And even as we read the book of the law, the first five books of the Old Testament, the book of Deuteronomy especially, Moses, in his law, makes provision for a king. He actually says that you're going to ask for a king, but, and this is the kind of king you can have. He makes provision for a king being a ruler over Israel. 
Not only that, but David, as we know, is highly regarded in Israel's history. He's seen as a a great man, a follower after God's own heart. So then we're left with the question, is a king bad or is he good? Is what they're asking for here in this passage a sin? It seems so. Well, this passage is divided into three sections, and we're going to go through each section. And we're going to see in each, each section three reasons why the real problem with the king and with asking for a king actually is in the motivation of Israel in its question, in its demand, in asking for a king. It's not in simply a king ruling over them. It is in asking and the motivation that they have in asking for the king. So as this chapter unfolds, first we see God's people reject God in order to look like everyone else. God's people reject God in order to look like everyone else. Now there's a theme developing in this book. Maybe you've picked up on it already. But it seems to be pretty easy to spot. It's that the sons tend not to follow in the father's footsteps. Have you seen that? We've already seen Eli. Remember Eli? He was a priest in Israel and he had two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Now Eli seemed to have some inclination toward the Lord. He seemed to have a heart that wanted to please the Lord at least in some respects. He wasn't perfect, that's true. But he did seem to at least know who the Lord was. His sons, however, it specifically says in the text, they did not know the Lord at all. Then we see later on, spoiler alert, we see Saul. He does not follow after the Lord at all, and yet he raises a son in Jonathan who seems to. Then we have David, who is a man after God's own heart, who raises children who very much are not. Right. So here is Samuel. He has two kids, Joel and Abijah, whom he appoints to be judges in Beersheba, which if you're looking at a map, Samuel is somewhere in the middle of Israel. The the two sons in Beersheba are somewhere down toward the very southern tip of Israel. And like other fathers in this book, Samuel's sons are not following in his ways. We see them here. They're perverting justice and they're taking bribes. Who is the highest bidder? That's who gets the rule. But you may also notice that when it comes to Samuel, he's revered. You remember Eli? Eli was judged pretty strongly for his son's sins. In fact, both of his sons died on the same day And when news was told to Eli on that same day, Eli fell over backwards, broke his neck, and he died on that same day. And the Lord made sure that we knew in the first four chapters that this was because of the sin of Eli and his sons. That his sons had sinned and he was going to kill not only his sons, but he was going to punish Eli for it as well. We know that nothing happens just by chance, and so Eli falling and breaking his neck is also due to the providence of God, and we see it as a judgment against what Eli did. But yet, here we get to Samuel, who has two sons who seem to be also pretty wicked, and Samuel is revered as a judge in Israel, 
He's revered as a prophet in Israel. And he seems not to be condemned in the same way. So why is it that Samuel gets one treatment and Eli gets another? Well, we're never told explicit why an answer to that question. However, I think there are some clues in the text that we've got in front of us that point us to the reason why Samuel is a good bit different than Eli. And the first is location. The boys are serving in Beersheba, which is a good bit south of where Samuel is up in the middle region of Israel. Whereas Eli and his sons seem to be in the same place. All of this is happening under Eli's nose. So likely Samuel is finding out about this from the people, maybe for the first time, when they tell him, your sons have perverted justice. They're taking bribes. It's in all likelihood Samuel is hearing about this either for the first time or he, it's very new to him. Second, compare what is said about Samuel in verse 3. Look at what it says. His sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Compare that to what is said about Eli all the way back in chapter 2, verse 29. Why then do you, this is said to Eli, why then do you, Scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling, and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel. And then also, look at the difference with Eli in chapter 3, verse 13. He says, And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever. For the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Compare that to what Samuel does in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. It says this, this is in the future, okay, but it says this in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Samuel is standing before the people of Israel and he says, Behold, I have obeyed your voice in all that you have said to me and have made a king over you. And now, behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and gray. And behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. So, there's some clues in the text that seem to suggest Samuel and Eli are a good bit different. One, the sins of Eli's sons are happening under his nose. And he has, it seems to be, a firm don't ask, don't tell policy. For which the Lord says, no, you're guilty. That doesn't seem to be the case with Samuel. Second, Eli is participating in their sins by eating the fat from the sacrifices as if he doesn't know where it came from. That's part of his don't ask, don't tell policy. Is they're providing him the brisket that comes from the point, which is the fatty portion, which is the good portion. All right, just so you know. If you're ever in line at a barbecue restaurant and they ask you which portion you want, you want the point. Eli's getting the point, and he's getting fat off the point, and he doesn't ask, and they don't tell. And then third, Eli doesn't restrain his sons, whereas it seems Samuel, by saying, my sons are with you, is saying, remember, I removed them from their post. That seems to be what he's saying there. 
Now, nothing is ever stated explicitly to my knowledge, but these are some clues to say that Samuel is a good bit different than Eli, and we should understand them differently. But the point in all of that is that the people see Samuel's sons, and they don't like the fact that they aren't like their father. So it prompts them to ask Samuel or demand from Samuel that he appoint them a king to judge them. There is maybe a little bit of irony there, right? That the king that's going to be appointed will die and his sons will take over the throne, right? So here is Samuel being confronted by the people about his sons and being pointed out that they, are, he, they want a king, being told that they want a king. And Samuel naturally is upset about this. And the Lord tells Samuel, look at what he says to him in verse 7. Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. So they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So, is it bad that the people wanted a king? Seems that God is saying that, but not necessarily. In fact, Moses even prepared them for the day that they would have a king. Let's look at Deuteronomy 17, verse 14. It'll show up on the screen behind me. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like the nations that are around me. Man, it's like Moses knew what was going to happen. You may indeed set a king over you. Okay, it seems like it's not that bad. Whom the Lord your God will choose. Well, one from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. So it seems like the law, at least in part, actually makes provision for something like this happening. For them asking for a king and a king being placed over them. But it certainly doesn't look that way in the passage. In the passage, it seems like this is a bad thing. In fact, Samuel feels really rejected. And God says, no, they haven't rejected you. They've rejected me. Although they kind of have rejected him. He says, they've done that to you. I get it. But it seems like we're supposed to see this as sinful even. That the children of Israel, in asking for a king, are sinful. Why? I think the answer, or at least part of the answer to their request is in verse 5. Look at it. Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. So it's not that they want a king. That's not the issue. It's that they want a king to replace Samuel. We want the king to judge us, not you. The problem with that is, of course, Samuel has been appointed by God to this post. In fact, we see Samuel in this passage going back in prayer before God, and God talks to him. Samuel talks to God, and God responds to Samuel. But they don't want 
Samuel as judge over the nation of Israel. They want a king to judge them like the rest of the nations have. See, Samuel sees this as rejection of him because the king is ultimately going to take his job in judging the nations. But God says, no, no, no. It's a rejection of me because you, Samuel, serve at my behest. You tell the people my words. You judge on my behalf. But they want a king to do the judging like the rest of the nations. So the first problem in their motivations for a king is that it comes from a desire to overthrow God's wisdom and rule. Problem number one. It comes from a desire to overthrow God's wisdom and rule. We don't want you, Samuel, who supposedly meet with God. We want a king. We want to look like the rest of the world. We're odd. We're outliers. We're strange. We want to look like everybody else, not just on the surface in having a king. Sure. Not, not just there. We want to look like the rest of the world in every respect. See, the first problem with requesting a king is that they want the stream of wisdom that rules the nation to come from a human, to come from flesh and blood, rather than living by faith. Rather than having Samuel meet with God and tell them what he says, and then just trust that Samuel's got it, and we're going out onto the battlefield, and we're living by faith here, I want someone standing in front of me making decisions, a flesh and blood person that I can appeal to. The buck stops with him. And you can't help but think all of this comes back from chapter 4 where we tried the God thing. We lost in battle and we tried the God thing. We tried to bring the box out here and set it around us. And let God lead us onto the field of battle. And guess what? It didn't work. So that, that's, I, we're tired of that. I'm tired of looking odd. I want to look like the rest of the world. You can't predict this God of ours. He does whatever He wants. And I don't like that. We want someone flesh and blood who will judge us. So... This next section, God warns His people that human rule results in slavery, not freedom. Human rule results in slavery, not freedom. In spite of the fact that they have rejected Samuel and God, serving other gods and doing a whole host of other things, the Lord still warns His people through Samuel of what a king is going to do. The Lord tells Samuel in verse 9, look at what he says, solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. The first thing that I want you to notice in verses 10 to 18 are the number of times the verb take occurs. Listen to this. Verse 11, the king will take your sons. Verse 13, he will take your daughters. Verse 14, he will take the best of your fields vineyards and orchards. Verse 15, he will take a tenth of your grain and your vineyards. Verse 16, he will take your male servants and female servants, your young men and even your donkeys. 
Verse 17, He will take a tenth of your flocks, and He will even take you to be His slaves. So it's pretty clear that the point being in this solemn warning that's being driven home from God through Samuel to the people is that the king comes in at the behest of the people that he's going to rule by human wisdom. And as such, he's going to take, 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 take. And there's going to be no stopping. But to drive that point home even further, look at the number of times your occurs in this passage. Your sons, your daughters, your fields, your grain, your vineyards, your servant, your young men, your donkeys, your flocks, even you as slaves. See, the king's not getting all of his property from neighboring enemies that he conquers. The king's not getting rich off the tribute paid by other nations. The king is getting rich not because he produces all of his own donkeys and grain and wine and vineyards and things like that. He's stealing it from you. God is teaching His people a fundamental lesson on government. This is a civics lesson that He's giving to them. Government doesn't produce anything. All that it has, it takes from someone else. I'm just going to leave that there. I can already see your imaginations running wild with that. Anything it has, it takes from its people. But this defies. What, what, you understand, the warning that God is giving to the people defies the kind of king that the law permitted them to have. That's what you have to see is drastically different from what Moses wrote in Deuteronomy to what is here requested and warned about in Samuel. The two are drastically different. Let's hear how Moses conceived of this king and what he said he was not allowed to do. Deuteronomy 17, verse 16. Only he must not, this is the king, must not acquire many horses for himself. Well, that's against exactly what was being warned. He must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive, excessive silver and gold. These are the things that are explicitly warned. The king that you're asking for, is ex that's exactly what he's going to do. He's going to defy the kind of king that I'm allowing you to have. But that's the kind of king you want. See, this is the second problem with the request or the demand from the Israelites for a king. It comes from a desire to serve anyone but the Lord. That is the fundamental problem with all of it. We would rather serve something we can see. We would rather serve a God made in our own image than that unpredictable, holy thing you've got over there. We would rather not hear from Him because we cannot control Him. 
The problem with them asking for a king is not that Israel is never going to have a king. You see, Israel is eventually going to have a king. Jesus is already set up. He's already, he's already teed up. He's coming. All right? It's already been promised. He's coming. He's going to be a king. But it's in their insistence on overthrowing God's appointed leader in Samuel with a king who's going to come in and judge by human wisdom. He's going to take the gold. He's going to take the silver. He's going to take the horses. He's going to take the wives. The warning then that you think this will allow you freedom in not having to live by faith, but walking by sight is going to result in your slavery. You understand? See, they don't want to walk in the ways of the Lord. They don't want to be guided by heavenly wisdom. They want flesh and blood in front of them. They want to be governed pragmatically. We want you to get to the field of battle. We want you to sit on your throne. And we want you to look at the landscape. And we want you to make a decision. And we want to hear that decision with our own ears. And we want to execute that decision. We want to be able to appeal to someone with eyes and teeth and nose and, and hair. We want somebody that we can talk to. But you see, what God is warning His people about is what seems to you like freedom now is in the end going to be your enslavement. And how do the people respond? Great! That sounds fantastic. We would rather be slaves of someone we know than servants of someone we don't. So it brings up the third section. The people insist on a strong man. The people insist on a strong man. Look at verse 19. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we may also be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Well, finally, the truth of the situation comes out. The people not only want a king to replace Samuel in bringing justice to the peoples, but they want a king to go out before them and fight their battles. Remember chapter 4? This left an indelible mark on Israel. There's no doubt in my mind. This left a mark on Israel. The ark didn't work. We brought it out into battle and it failed us. We want flesh and bone. We want standing armies. We want chariots. We want horses. We want spears. We want to trust in what we can see like all the other nations. But this is the third problem in asking for a king. It comes from a desire to walk by sight rather than by faith. We want to walk by sight rather than by faith. One commentator says this, It is obvious that Israel is dissatisfied with the arrangement under the judges, where God, in response to a crisis, raises up a leader who summons the people for war. There is no standing army or chariot force. See, they'd rather be able to exert their impressive strength. We want a standing army that warns off all the bad guys. But you understand, that is the exact opposite of the Lord's MO. That is the, the standing army, the impressive force, and the, the big strength is the exact opposite of how the Lord has operated throughout the Old Testament, even up to this point. 
How does he operate with Joshua and his armies? Do they collect all the swords and spears and the people of the people that they conquer? No, they burn it all to the ground. What does he do to Gideon? Does he have Gideon build up a 30 billion man army so that they can fight and show their strength? He whittles it down to nothing. Why does he do it that way? So that everyone who's there in battle knows we didn't win this battle because of us. We couldn't have. Look at our numbers. We're 300. They're 3,000. We won this battle simply because the Lord was fighting for us. You see, the God's M.O. is to whittle things down to absolutely nothing so that you understand it's Him that fights for you, not you that fights for you. That you can't put your trust in the strength of your horses or in the sharpness of your axe. The king that God would have Israel be led by is actually quite the opposite of a strong man. That's what they want. They want a strong man. But you understand the king that he's wanting to give them is different than a strong man. The biblical, he, the, the biblical definition of God's king is actually a Bible scholar. You believe that? I like the fact that Bible scholars could be kings. A good, that's a good deal. Listen to what he would have them do. Deuteronomy 17, the passage right after that, talking about the king in verse 18, he says, And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him. And he shall read it, in, he shall read in it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers. Okay, maybe not a biblical scholar. And that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. That's the kind of king that God wants to place over Israel, a scholar studies his word and keeps it and obeys it. God sees his people's need for a king long before the people ever do. See that? Long before the people ever do. God sees his people's need for a king. The problem is that God knows precisely what kind of king that will be fit for his people, but it's not the kind of king they want. Perhaps that's why the king, in their own choosing, ends up being Saul, who's tall and he's impressive. Look, Saul checks all the boxes. Amen? Strong. Cut jaw. He's hiding out by the baggage, but we'll, we'll talk about that later. Impressive. A head and shoulders above the rest. He is swipe right, all right? We like it. But when he shows up, he's not quite like his profile picture. All right? You know that? He's clearly had the Instagram filters turned on. Uh huh. He's not what they bargained for. But he's going to rule pragmatically. When he steps out onto the field of battle, God has told him some things, but he's going to go, you know, this seems to make more sense now. So let's do it this way instead. 
He does everything pragmatically. And it will actually lead to his disobedience to all of God's commands in favor of conventional human wisdom. His name, ironically, is Saul, which means to ask. And in Saul, Israel is getting exactly what they asked for. And perhaps it makes more sense why God chooses David, who is described as the youngest in the family, the shortest, the weakest, can't even put on the armor, but actually the one who seeks after God's own heart. See, this is the man fit to lead God's people, and he leads them well. But even David sins, and he sins spectacularly sometimes. But in David, we don't see the true king for God's people. We don't see the true king for God's people. But we do see the type of king that God is going to place on the throne forever. See, the king that God is going to send in due time is his very son. Born in a manger. Born to a virgin and a carpenter living in a small fishing village, ministering in towns around Galilee with nowhere to lay his head. But you understand, that peasant that we see in the Gospels was the one and only Son of God who had come to redeem God's people who had been held under the bondage of sin. He didn't come as a strong man. He came as a weak man. The person that the Israelites want, Jesus doesn't even meet that that description. He comes as a weak man, not one of noble birth, not even one of comely appearance that we should look at him as the prophet Isaiah tells us. Because he came not to redeem us with the strength of his arms, because our enemy was not of flesh and blood. Our enemy was sin that had enslaved us. See, He came to live in perfect righteousness and fulfill the legal demands of God's holy law. And yet, instead of reaping the rewards for His life of righteousness, He died on the cross suffering the wrath of God for your sin and for my sin. Friend, it's really something that you should consider That God's salvation of your soul came in the person of Jesus Christ who died on the cross to free you from having to suffer the wrath of God. It is the only reason why you are spared from His wrath is the sacrificial death of Christ. It means something for you. That you should confess Him as Lord You understand what Israel is doing? They're throwing off even Jesus as king over them. Don't make the same mistake. He is established as king. Confess him as Lord. Submit to him as king. Live in humble submission to his word. Live in community with those who have likewise acknowledged him as Lord. This gift that He offers to you is by grace through faith. It's free of charge. 
So what that means to you is that you can confess your sins to him. Do you understand that you can do that? Now, you may have never talked to the Lord ever in your life. You can confess him as Lord and lay all your sin out there on the table before him. And he is faithful and just and will forgive you your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Because right now, I have a feeling I know what you might be thinking. I want freedom from Christ. I mean, look at all this stuff that's in the Bible. It's, it's filled, it seems like, with do's and don'ts and, and all of these things. I, don't, I want freedom from that. But what you don't realize is that freedom from Christ is enslavement to sin. You have traded a kind master for a harsh one. You have traded a master who truly wants not only your life, but wants to give you eternal life for a master who wants only death. You ever notice that when you stand there looking in the mirror, all your sin is out there on display? That you feel even for that brief moment, that pit of despair? Where all the things that sin promised you, it never fulfilled. And all it left you with is more emptiness. You ever felt that? There's a reason you feel that. Because all the pleasures of this world could never fill that hole. And all of the pleasures of this world are telling you there is slavery in Christ. And it's quite the opposite. Because you see, Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose again on the third day. He ascended to the right hand of God the Father where He lives and reigns and one day will return to judge the living and the dead. He has all authority in heaven and on earth and He has fixed a day where He will judge the world. In the meantime, all who are called by His name are called to walk by faith. We're to submit to His kingly authority right now and walk as He tells us to walk. That means to live within our means. That means to walk circumspectly in this world. That means to be humble. That means to repent of sin. To live at peace with one another. To steer clear of sin and temptation. To hunger and thirst after righteousness. But you see, it's frequently the case that Christ's people are prone to reject His authority and conform instead to the thinking of the world. Because here's the reality. We're not much different than them. We really don't like looking different. Even the people that say, I want to look different, are looking different like everybody else is looking. Right? That's why we have fashion trends. We frequently are prone to reject His authority, conform to the thinking of the world around us, just like the children of Israel in this passage. Walking by faith, in an age of science and reason means that we are going to stick out like sore thumbs. So what do we do? Often, we compromise so that we can fit in with all the people around us. How many parenting decisions are made because that's what all their friends are doing? You ever hear this? There's smartphones in probably most of our pockets. 
Most adults can't even use them discerningly, and yet we give them to our nine-year-old. They're portals into a world of sin that is a drug that will addict them for probably an entire lifetime. And what do we do? Here, son, have an iPhone. All his friends have one. What are we teaching our kids about Christianity? About the faith that we hold? If we don't want them also to stand out like a sore thumb amongst their friends. When the wisdom of the world says this is what we should do with our kids, why do we go along with it? Is it not the same thing here? Casting off the Lord's kingship over us? As parents, we often prioritize well-roundedness over gospel-centeredness. So we ensure that our kids go to the best schools. They have the best instruction. They have the best education. There's nothing wrong with education. But even if it means that they're indoctrinated by godlessness every day, boy, that seems like a trade-off that's not worth it. The reality is, if you seek to live a godly life, you're going to be ridiculed. But what you'll find is that even in the church, especially in America, we really don't like being ridiculed. We're very sensitive to it. Honestly, we're babies. We're far too sensitive. Get over it. That's how it is, being God's people. That's how it is, walking circumspectly in the world. People are going to look at you. They are going to think you're different. And praise God that they do. It means you're doing something right. See, the difference is we know our king is Jesus. But still the question remains, how does your life demonstrate your allegiance to Christ as king above all others? Who rules your house What wisdom prevails around your dinner table? There is still the question Jesus asks to everyone who would follow him as disciples. Why do you call me Lord? And don't do what I say. Let's pray. 